we're going to start today studying why we study our Bibles. I'm going to read for Psalm, from Psalm 1, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we will, we will jump in. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we come to you, and we want to walk in the way that you watch over, that you protect, and that you keep. So that, Lord, one day when judgment comes, we will be able to stand. And so, Lord, help us to know what your word says. Help us to delight in it, to meditate on it, Lord, and to not take the counsel of those who will not stand before you one day and to not stand with them now. And we pray that this would all be empowered by the Holy Spirit, making available to us your word and interpreting it rightly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So before we, we hop into too serious a matter, I just want to ask you, if you were going to try to tell somebody about your favorite book, what would the book be, and why would you make an appeal to them for why they should read it? So again, what, what's one of your favorite books? And if somebody just came up and you said, why should I read it? What would you say to them? What? Call on someone. Sam, would you like to give us your favorite book? <laughs> Kellen, great. No, that's great. Ten maps that shape the world. Some historical context. It's a little funny, but also helpful. Like, you're figuring out how to kind of understand the world you're in by studying the maps. Okay, great. Any, like, one or two more answers? Anybody else have a favorite book? It Can it be fictional, nonfiction? You said that was seeking, seeking the correct Jesus? Is that what it's called? Seeking all of Jesus. Okay. Seeking all of Jesus. Yeah. And just like the relational tones of the book, like you found like really helpful. That's great. Anybody else have, have any others? Let's try to get one more. Come on. Well, I'll share mine. So I, uh, I, I always am torn because I love fantasy books. I just love reading them. And uh, like I would probably commend to you, if you are considering watching The Wheel of Time on Amazon, which I have not even started, I don't even know if it's worth watching yet, but uh, the books are amazing. I may have read them three times, um, which if you ever look at the thickness, Claire will probably tell you I must be insane to read them. But they're so good, and like the uh, characters, like coming to this great, like culmination, this great war. And uh, one of my favorite moments happens at the end, where uh, this is a slight spoiler alert, but it'll take so long for them to get there that you'll forget it by then. <laughs> that uh, one of these, this like general who's undefeatable, uh, and is just striking down all of like the good guys, like best champions, essentially. Uh, he's like he comes up against one of their best swordsmen, and at one point, this guy comes and he leaps off his horse and he starts fighting this enemy general. And he's telling them, um, he says, I've come here to kill you. And that's pretty intense. But eventually what happens is that this swordsman, he leaves like a gap where the enemy general can actually come for him. 
And at the moment where he makes that plunge, the enemy general does that, and he says, I've got you. And at the same time as this is all happening, this swordsman says, you weren't listening to me. I didn't say I came here to win. I said I came here to kill you. And then he, like, thrusts his sword through the guy's neck at the same time. And that was unfathomable to that enemy general. And I've always thought that's such a great metaphor for some of what Christ does. When, like, Satan just, like, can't imagine someone giving himself up for other people. And I've just always loved some of the characters in the arcs and how they come to those places. And it just feels like such rich payoff for the characters. And to me, it just, like, brings, and I can kind of transport myself and and it brings alive stories that I even read in the Bible. So that's just one of my kind of favorite moments that happens in, in a moment where I read. But we want to think about, uh, obviously, why Christians want to read the Bible. That's going to be similar somewhat in the reasons we read many of the books we love. But in some ways, it's also going to be very different because the Bible is a distinct book. And we want to start off just talking about, first of all, what do Christians even believe the Bible is? What do Christians believe about the Bible So one of the first places that we can go to think about this is thinking about God's relationship to his word, because that's going to be foundational. So in John 1.1, we're going to get the statement, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we have this very strong, in fact, identical relationship between God and his word. And yes, that there is referring to Jesus Christ. In a second, we'll talk about why scripture and Jesus Christ become so closely connected that they can both be called God's word. We're going to examine that. Uh, But we've seen that there's an intimate relationship between God and his word. And that means that really when we talk about what we believe in scripture, everything that we say about scripture is something that we believe about it because we believe that about God. So for example, we might say Psalm 119, 105. Anybody got that memorized? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, right? The word illuminates our path. It is light. But at the same time, 1 John 1, 5 will say God is light. So you're starting to see, well, both God is light and his word is light. We have the same thing in the fact that when we say his word is inerrant or that it's pure, that it contains no error, right? Proverbs 35 said, every word of the Lord proves trustworthy, but that is, uh, that, that word trustworthy can also mean just pure. Every word of the Lord is pure. And we believe that partly because in that same verse from 1 John 1, 5, it says not only that God is light, it also goes on to say, and there is no darkness in him at all. So, right, it's not just that God is light. He's light all the time. He's fully light, and there's never a diminishment in the light. He's perfect. He's pure, and his word, therefore, is pure. And we can say that God is trustworthy, right? Isaiah 48, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Why does the word of the Lord stand forever? Because in Revelation 1.8, God can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, God is the Alpha and the Omega, and those aren't at different points. God is right now the beginning and the end. He is from eternity to eternity, God. So he is forever, and therefore his word is forever. And so I just want to draw this out, that you can start to see everything we're going to say about Scripture, we really say because we believe that about God. His word is a reflection. It is a reflection of who we believe God is. And so we can say the same thing when we say the word is sufficient, right? We believe that because God is self-sufficient. When we say the word has authority, we believe that because the Lord has authority over our lives. He made us. We are his. And so we could just go through all the things we might believe about Scripture. But the thing I want you to see is there's a close relationship between God and his word. So how we treat his word is going to be deeply reflective of how we treat God, how we understand God, what we believe God to be. Because remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So because God is the one who all things come from, we also believe that Scripture is where we're going to get everything we need, as 2 Peter 1, 3 says, for life and godliness. Everything we need to live and to have godliness in this life is going to be found in God, and therefore we can say, where else should we expect to find everything we need if it's in God? Based on what we just taught. It's in his word. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a trick question. So, does anybody just have quick questions about that? Or is that, you know, novel? Or is there anything people would like to clarify? Any doctrines about scripture? Like, wait, how does that relate to God? Yeah, Sam. So 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, we're, when we talk about word, too, we have to, uh, you know, always want to make sure we're parsing out which word we're talking about. There's a sense in which the word in John 1.1 1, 1 is Jesus Christ, of course. Now, we're going to get into why the God's word scripture can also be called God's word. But, yes, essentially, right. But, yes, we're basically saying because of, and we'll get into a lot of this with the Holy Spirit and his role in crafting scripture, um, but because of the same divine essence being in all of those things, even though there are three persons, obviously, uh, we are saying essentially everything that we believe about Scripture is true because we believe God stands behind it, because he backs it up, essentially. Does that make sense? Okay, so the second thing we do want to talk about um, is then, okay, if we believe these things about God, well, we find them in Scripture. How do we know Scripture is true? We believe scripture is true because the Holy Spirit testifies to us that the scripture is the truth. So this is fundamental, right? You cannot actually believe what is in your Bible without actually testimony from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is indispensable to a Christian reading. There are elements of reading the Bible. Now, some people could analyze historical context or something like that. There may be grammarians who can kind of pick it apart and be like, I know what the sentence means. There is a part of reading scripture, though, that can only come when the Holy Spirit is testifying to us of the truth of Scripture. So what does this mean? Uh, a couple places. Will somebody start looking up 2 Corinthians 4, 6? Um, just feel free to go there, and somebody can read it out when we get there. Uh, but while I, you're turning there, John 16, 13, right? Jesus is leaving, and he says something pretty profound. It's better for me that I go, which, first of all, let's just stop and be like, you sure about that, Jesus? You really sure that it's better if you, you go? But he means it, and so we should take him seriously because he will send another counselor who will lead the apostles into all truth. And through their testimony to Christ, consequently, all other disciples will also be led into all truth. And this is going to be found, we're going to see how this comes to life in Scripture, and how Scripture is the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, and is where we find truth. But what truth is he leading us into? Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Somebody who has it. Yeah, so it says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what the Spirit is coming to give testimony to, to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this just practically mean? This means that we we all, as Romans 1 will say, have a knowledge of God, but we all suppress that knowledge. It's all uh, instinctual to want to push that down, and and in the the wickedness of our hearts, we actually end up with that that knowledge shrouded in a darkness that we can't even actually unpack, right? And so what happens is that God lets light shine out of darkness, which is profound when you actually think that it's not shining into the darkness. I mean, we probably don't have time to unpack it, but lets light shine out of darkness. Something comes from within in the testimony of Scripture, of, of the Spirit, and it gives light to the knowledge of the glory of God. There is something about man that is, as the Westminster Catechism says, if you know it, the the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's something about the end of man that is made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when the Spirit, in his kindness, makes the glory of God revealed to us, there's something about us that goes, that's right. That's what I've been longing for. That is what I've always wanted. As uh, Augustine will say, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And that is so powerful. And that's what the, the Spirit is giving light to. And we should just recognize this as a gift of sight from the Holy Spirit. So one thing we believe about the Bible as well, that the Holy Spirit is testifying to us the truth of Scripture. And that's indispensable. And the final thing is we want to take that little final uh, last phrase and I'll segue into our last point for this first section. But this glory of God, it is rooted in the face of Christ. Christ is finally, and, and most kind of fully, a testimony to Christ. Right, so Luke 24, 44, if you want to flip there, we're going to find Jesus make a very profound statement about pretty much the whole entirety of what Scripture is trying to accomplish. Um, and if we take him at his word, then we must believe this too. He says in Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And he's talking about how he must die and he must uh, be in the ground three days and then he'll be raised again. He's referencing all that he had taught the disciples about that. This is what I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus is just oriented all of our reading 
in the Old Testament towards him. Uh, if you don't know, that's basically the trifold kind of division of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms would be how they would talk about it. If you ever hear the word Tanakh or something like that. It's just essentially the three uh, sections of the Bible that a Hebrew would have possessed. They would have had their law, they would have had all the prophets, and then they would have had their writings. It was slightly different in its organization than we have it today. But Jesus is saying, everything written about me, about Christ, in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So Christ is where we start to get drawn up into the triune God. Christ is the face through which we start to understand the glory of God once more. And it is fully that that we, we want to affirm Scripture is most fully bearing testimony to. It is bearing testimony to Christ and pointing us towards him. Now, in that, you're going to get this beautiful Trinitarian relationship where we actually don't just get drawn up into the person of Jesus Christ, but eventually get transported up into the transcendent God. So, for example, the Holy Spirit, right, is going to reveal Christ to us, who is the Son of God. And then the Son of God comes to actually make the Father known. Well, how does the Father make the Son known, right? He sends the Spirit. Well, why, why does he send the Spirit? Because the Son is worthy to ask the Father to send the Spirit. And then the Spirit comes. And you just see like how uh, Psalm 36.9 says it beautifully. In your light we see light. Which is just a great thing. Like the second you start focusing on a member of the triune God, it's like, they just, it, it's like endless vision of just moving back and forth until, as it should be, they become just inseparably one and glorious. But it's in the face of Christ and his incarnation. That's why we celebrate Advent and Christmas, that we actually begin to have access. It's through the the God-made flesh, Jesus Christ, that we start to enter into this. And so who can think about, like, an example, thinking about that Trinitarian kind of display of Scripture? Where are times in Scripture that you can think about that happening? Anybody think of times where we see this kind of hermeneutic, as we might say, of Scripture pull itself out that we can say, yeah, that is what we believe about Scripture from the text. Uh, Just like what's a time in Scripture that we see this kind of like Trinitarian revelation playing out, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but centered around the person of Jesus Christ? Baptism of Jesus Christ, what what happens there? Yeah. That's perfect, right? So we have the person of Jesus Christ being baptized. The Father affirms, this is my beloved Son. This is my Son. And the Spirit is coming and descending on him to validate that that in itself is true. That's right. There's one other time that at least leaps off my mind. Can anybody think of another time that something similar happens? It happens on a mountain. Yeah, it's transfiguration. Anybody know what happened at the transfiguration? Briefly sketch out the details. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's this great cloud that descends on Jesus as he's on the mountaintop, and that's the Spirit's presence. And then a voice again booms out. It's the Father. He says, this is my beloved son. And then he, of course, says, again, pointing to the person of Christ, listen to him. Listen to him. The whole point of that story in large detail is basically pointing us, listen to Christ Pay attention here, because if you pay attention there, you'll get everywhere else you need to go. So that's just some of what we believe about the Bible. Again, that, that we believe about the, the things about God's word because we believe those things about God. We believe the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of Scripture, and that most fully what he's testifying to us is the reality of Christ, that he's pointing us to the face of Christ. Does anybody have any questions just on that first section before we move on? Well, we uh, will continue on, and we'll have time for questions at the end. Um, But I want to move into kind of what are our motivations for reading. So kind of on the human side of things, this is what we believe about God's word and that it has everything for life and godliness and because God has given it to us and it's a testimony to Jesus Christ. But if somebody was to say, why should you read it? Well, you'll see that we keep going with the theme of Christ. The first reason we should want to read the scriptures is to have Christ. So John 5.39 will say, he's talking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Again, Jesus just making an audacious statement, but a true statement. that They've been searching the scriptures, but they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. right? Because they're just stuck 
kind of reading on the surface of the text and not seeing what the text is pointing to, they won't go to the thing the text is actually trying to get them to where they'll really find life. So the first reason you want to read the Bible is because the person who can give you life is contained in it. Jesus Christ, who came to give you life and life abundantly, by the way, wants you to draw near to him. And he's given the word, not so that you can just stay on the surface and kind of read it and scan through it, but that so in it you find Christ. And so that is what we want to do. We want to know him. And to know him is to have salvation, as John six twenty nine will say. So that's the first reason. But going beyond that, um, we can spend a long time on that. It is important that we see that Christ is essentially why we're reading. But beyond that, we also have the motivation of love. And this will be closely bound up with Christ. So, um, for example, in Psalm 1, right, we see that his delight in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Why would you meditate on the law of the Lord? Because it's a delightful thing. Because there's good things there. And so this gets us into this question of, of delight or what I would even call love. Uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40 says this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's a lawyer asking Jesus to comment on the law and what commandments stand out. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, that is, again, we're just getting these things that keep pointing us to summations of what are the principles, what are the categories that, that most help us read scripture. And it's this, that you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. For all the laws is hung upon these two commands. And we want to talk about why love drives us to read scripture in two ways. First, we want to see that scripture is God's way of loving us first. Scripture is God's gift and his act of love to us, to have given to us. So, for example, in Genesis 3, 9, when Adam and Eve have sinned, right? Does anybody remember what they do when God comes walking in the garden? They run away. That's right. They hide. Now, imagine, if you will, that God has just said, if they won't come to me, I won't say anything. And he walks and he does his stroll and then he just leaves. Just let that hang for a second. And think about how terrifying scripture is if it just ends in Genesis 3, 9. If there's only like, yeah, it's, it's just awful because Adam and Eve don't want to encounter God. But then mercifully, God breaks the silence and he says, where are you? He says, where are you? And I would say that's one of the first acts of mercy God does in, in the whole Bible is to start a conversation with Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve don't really want to start a conversation with him in that moment. Because otherwise the Bible just ends at its horrible silence all the way down until who knows when God ends it. So God speaking to us is his act of mercy. So uh, if, will somebody turn and read 1 Corinthians two, eleven through 12 for us? When you get there, just go ahead and read it. And here we're going to find something pretty profound, kind of building on what we've just said. Amen. Uh, we, no one knows the thoughts in a person's mind except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So, for example, pretend I have a word in mind, and I just start mouthing it to you. Can any of you hear me? What's wrong with my speech there? Not projecting. One way that I want to, a specific word I want to get to, because that's right, but the way we project is by giving our breath to our words. We breathe, and as I actually exhale, the word that is in my mind comes to you, and you start to understand what I'd like to say to you. Hopefully it's clear. Uh, but yes, if I don't actually give my breath to my words, you will never know what I mean to say, because those thoughts are my own, unless I choose to start communicating them. Similarly with God, no one comprehends the thoughts of God, in case you needed that explained to you today. It's very clear in Scripture. No one understands the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, which is within him. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What a glorious gift that God 
It doesn't just ask, where are you? But then he actually starts to unfold himself before us by communicating and by recording this. And scripture is where we're going to find that communication most fully and most accurately placed. Because what's happening there is in John 16, 13, right? Going back to Jesus saying, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a counselor. He's going to lead you into all truth. Now, what was one of the main jobs of the apostles? What were they supposed to do? Communicate the gospel. That's right. Yeah. And so how are, how are they going to make sure that they communicate the gospel? How are they going to make sure that the testimony of Jesus Christ is, is laid down? Yep. Yep. And so how are they going to make sure that gets handed down? That's right. Yeah, they're, they're going to make disciples and hand that down. And that's going to involve starting to record the information, the testimony. I mean, that is why we have the New Testament, is because the apostles understood. One of the, one of the things, if you ever wonder, like, hey, how did we even get our New Testament? One of the categories that had to be true when this, they came together in about the 4th century, uh, late 4th century, and they, they basically developed the canon. Uh, the canon was already developed. Sorry, that's a poor way. Don't let, anyway, it was developed long before that. But when they kind of officially recognized that there was a canon, that's a better way to say it, uh, they, one of the categories they had was that it had to be apostolic, because it had to be somebody who was either near an apostle and was recording what the apostle was telling them or had to be an apostle himself. And so we actually have the recording of the teaching of the apostles, the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And this scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 is said to be God-breathed. The scriptures are God-breathed. So that the spirit working through leading the apostles into teaching them all truth is actually then developing the canon that we now have by the recordings of the writings that we have that have come to us such that we have access. We actually know what the apostles believed. We believe that. We believe we know what they taught, and so that we can accurately believe that we know Jesus, and we can bear witness to him. And so this is just, this is why we say to people, come. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, you know, the spirit and the bride, the church, are both telling people, come and drink from the waters without price, because this act of scripture being recorded is such a gift of love. This act of communication from God is so good. And yeah, we, we just want to make sure that we are operating in love. But there's a second way in which we want to talk about why we read Scripture, and that's so we can learn how to love others. So we don't only want to be loved, but then we want to learn how to love others. Augustine, in his On Christian uh, Doctrine, says, Whoever, then, thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures, or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Again, he says, anyone who interprets scripture but does not build up the twofold love of God and neighbor doesn't understand the scriptures as he ought. Our whole hermeneutic essentially around scripture on some level revolves around accurately loving God as he is and then that love of God transforming us to also want to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the goal of scripture in in large sum. And so we want to remember that if we're being loved by Scripture, right, this should express itself as a fountain that wells up within us and flows out of us. You can actually see this in Psalm 1. It's because, in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which the Holy Spirit is often communicated in water image in the Bible. If you ever read, just look for that. That is so true. Jesus will even say, I'll give you water to drink. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. So right here, right, this stream of water is, I think, basically pointing us to the Holy Scripture, Uh, as recorded by the Holy Spirit. But what does it do? It yields its fruit in season. So as the water soaks into the tree, what does it spring forth into? It springs forth into fruit. And it overflows such that people can come and rest in the shade. They can enjoy the fruit of someone who is being saturated by the scriptures of God. So we want to learn how to love others. And we need to read scripture because love is not abstract. Right? Love has concrete expressions. So John 3.16 will say, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God doesn't just say he loves us. He actually performs love. And it's concrete. And scripture will have many things to say about uh, how we can love one another. We won't go into all those commands. But as you read, you'll start to see, okay, there's actually some, some kind of regulations around what love does and doesn't look like. And I need to understand that if I'm going to express love as God has defined love. And so that's another way that we want to do this. But another motivation is continuing off of that to be fruitful. We want to bear fruit in love. So this man bears fruit in all 
that he does. And the major way that I'll just want to talk about this is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in Matthew 3, 8, John says to the Pharisees who come to him, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I try to pick that particularly because it has the tree image still going on, right? He, God has an axe to the tree, and he is telling it, I need you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So that is one of the primary ways that scripture is trying to bring out and draw forth fruit is that which is in keeping with repentance and turning to God, turning away, as we see, from the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. God is saying, turn away from that. Instead, turn your attention and your mind onto the law of the Lord, wherein Christ is revealed to you, where Christ has been shown to have died for you, where Christ is shown to have been raised for you, and Christ will come back to judge the living and the dead. For those who have done good through Jesus Christ, they will receive eternal life. And for those who have done wickedness and denied Jesus Christ, they will receive eternal condemnation. So Christ says, come to me. Come to me while I can still be found. So that's what we want to do. We want to turn to him while we can still be found. We want to turn away from broken cisterns of water, the wells we dig out for ourselves. And instead, we want to, to throw ourselves into scripture, to throw ourselves into the water of life, to know the Holy Spirit is there and to know he will lead us to Christ if we are faithful and we take the time to pray, meditate, and think on these things. And then just briefly, I want to think about the last two verses of uh, Psalm 1. Uh, and our last two motivations are hope and judgment. First, hope. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So just on the matter of hope, just understand the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord watches over that way of the righteous. And there's an implication that those who don't stand with sinners now will be the ones standing one day. They will be the people who stand in the judgment. They will be the ones who can sit in the congregation of the righteous because the Lord knows their way. The Lord has given them this way. And we want to stay on this path because we know that there is just this, there's a thrill of hope that Jesus is going to return one day. Just as he has come in his first advent, he will come again in a second appearing. And when he does, he will take us and we'll have new things. I mean, in some ways, I don't know what Revelation will look like completely. But in some ways, I love what C.S. Lewis says in the, at the end of Chronicles of Narnia. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a great image. I mean, you know, it ends with us being with God, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, I mean, it paints a glorious picture of what's there, but forever with God? I mean, what will we enjoy? There is a hope, and we know it will be good, and it will be so pleasant, and it will be peaceful, and there will be no more war or tears or death or sin, and I want to live in that world, and I have hope that that world is one that's good to wait for and long for, and when it comes, it will be a world in which every chapter is better than the one before. And there's no end to the chapters. I mean, if you've ever read a good book and you get to the end and you're like, ah, I just wish that could keep going about 2,000 more chapters. Uh, this is, the, the Bible's the story for you. Because there will be no end when we are with God. And scripture is teaching us that there is a hope that we can be with God. Uh, and also just think about, this would be such a great marker of Christians right now. I mean, just think about the media. How many hopeful people do you know in media right now? I mean, just think about pundits who make their living by being really hopeful <laughs> yeah, the chuckles reveal it all, right? If you start to go through your category and you're like, who, I mean, there was that little moment in the, uh, in the pandemic where John Krasinski tried to do that really good news. And all of us kind of crazy, like, we were like, actually, this is kind of what we want, isn't it? This is kind of nice to just hear about good things in the world. Because all, honestly, all of us are just really hoping that maybe there's some good news out there in the world and that maybe we could hear about it. And so he's honestly tapping into something there. But most of our news doesn't make a lot of money doing that. Um, they make money, unfortunately, through a lot of other ways. But Christians don't have to be that way. In a world where you can actually go and look like, man, a lot of things are pretty messed up. But you know what? I'm actually pretty hopeful. That would be a powerful testimony. Because then they're like, wait, why are you hopeful? Why do you have anything good going on for you? And then you're like, well, let me tell you, I know a guy. And then you have a conversation about Christ. 
But we do have to end just saying there is judgment. Remember, the wicked do not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the, the, the righteous. If we neglect God's word, if we neglect it, don't be fooled. There's no, like, God looking at you and going, like, well, you just didn't know. The time has come to an end for ignorance. And instead, God calls all people to repentance. We must read his word. And if we won't, if we won't learn about Christ and come to him, there is only a fearful expectation of falling into the hands of a living God. And, and I would pray that no one in this room would think that a good end. And instead, choose hope. Choose Christ. Okay, so how should one interpret their Bibles? Any questions on all that? That was a lot. So just quickly, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the Holy Spirit, yeah, as the breath of God, makes known the mind of God. And he's making the word known. So, you know, that's just, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the nice things that Scripture teaches us, that there's something analogous about our own speech and God's speech. Now, it's not perfect one-to-one. Don't ever do that too much. But there is something analogous about it. And so that we can think about our own words and our own speech and the, the way we make our spirits known. And there is something of that that we can actually say is true about God because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 2. Yeah. Um, yeah, any other questions? Okay, I'll move on. We'll try to leave some time for questions at the end as well. Um, how should one interpret their Bibles? Here I want to get into talking about, this is going to be, high, we're going to do like more deep dives on some of this stuff, but I, this is just a high framework for what is even interpretation? What do we even mean when we say we should study or interpret or meditate on our Bibles? And uh, there, I just want us to turn to James 1, 21 through 25. And cards on the table, I love Kevin Van Hooser. If any of you are hermeneutics geeks, you'll need to buy Kevin Van Hooser books and get into them. I won't say they're always easy, but they're always rewarding. And I'm stealing a lot of my ideas from him. Uh, So anyway, this is a, a verse that I think just says so much about what it means to interpret scripture. So James 1, 21 through 25 says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, right? Repent. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Salvation, praise God. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, so if you had to try to pull out, what are the two major components of what a Christian is supposed to do with the word? What are they? Hear and do. Hear and do. That's great. Might be in the handout. But no, that's perfect. It's hearing and doing the word of God. So I just want to basically give you a very simple idea of what interpretation means is first hearing the word of God. That's one act, but then not only hearing, but then doing the word of God. And that full interpretation, you've never interpreted a text until you are starting to do the text. That until it starts to be dramatized in your life, until the text knows how to play itself out in your life, you have not interpreted a text. We can actually see some of this, right? Um, for example, we, we know that hearing is commanded in the scriptures often. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel. Proverbs 1, 8. Solomon says, Listen, my son, to my instruction. But this uh, hearing involves a recognition that there is someone worthy to be listened to. So the first act of hearing is a, an act of humility. Hearing is willing to actually stop and take time. So you can actually think about, like, you know, because the, the, the Pharisees are indicted for listening but never hearing. You know, they're always kind of like their ears, like, are kind of open, but they're also clogged. Um, and Jesus says that that's a problem. He says in Matthew 13, 14, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive, right? So there's some act of like words can go into our brain, but this isn't the kind of hearing James is talking about. Um, 
And Jesus will often ask them, even in this question, and it's a thought-provoking in our own interpretations, Jesus will ask them, like in Matthew 19, 14, he'll say, have you not read? And this would just be so insulting to a Pharisee, because of course they've read. The Pharisees probably have all this stuff memorized. And they're like, of course, yeah, Jesus, I, I even just read that. I memorized it. And I memorized it while you were still doing carpentry. What are you talking about? So this is so insulting, but what is Jesus getting at? I mean, one point he gets into Matthew 22, 43 through 45, and this is where the Christological element of Scripture is coming in, where we can't just superficially read the, the, the words on, we have to see how Christ is in the words, how he's in Scripture, and he's being testified to, because Jesus will ask, how does David say that his son is his Lord? <laughs> A very Christological text, and the Pharisees don't even offer an answer. They just walk away. So it's like, have they not read that? No, they read it, but they never heard it. They never understood it because they hadn't understood Christ. And so hearing is this act of of humility. It's coming to the text, realizing there's something worthy of our attention and that there's something to be communicated to us. And so we need to take the time, the hard work, to actually see what is being communicated to us and you can actually think about, you know, the difference between this with an analogy. is like, you know, if, if somebody's not really interesting to you, you may, like, pull out your phone, right, and you're kind of scrolling through. And I'm saying this because sometimes I unfortunately do it. You're scrolling through Twitter, and you're checking on what all the, you know, theologians are saying. And your wife says something to you, and you just kind of are like, I heard about 60% of that. All right, I got to put the phone away, and now I need to listen. Uh, yeah, so that is not hearing, When our attention is distracted and divided and we don't feel like the other person is worthy of our full attentive, the full use of our resources to understand what they would like for us to do, we are not hearing. We are not listening. It's when we put the phones away. It's when we put away all the distractions that cling so closely to us and we come to God's word and we sit at Christ's feet. It's when we aren't like Martha running around bustling, trying to serve Christ, but actually taking time like Mary to sit with the good portion that won't be taken from us, that is when we are starting to hear. And there's humility and there's a recognition, you have something I need to know that I don't know on my own, that I have to be taught. And if you don't teach it to me, it's really bad. So please teach me. And that's going to require time, prayer, meditation. We're going to get into more of those things. We're going to talk about preparing your heart and all these things later. But that's just a a basic understanding of hearing. But then we also went into get into doing. So will somebody turn to Matthew 22, 28 through 32? And uh, somebody who hasn't read for us today, please, will you be the bold one and read for us? And while you're doing that, I just want to leave this verse in your mind. 2 Corinthians 4.20 says something that's kind of challenging, but it says the kingdom of God consists in power and not in words, which is challenging. And I want us to think about that statement in light of Matthew 22, uh, 38 through 32. Somebody's got it. Just is it twenty-one? Is it terrible? The two sons. Okay, sorry. It might be Matthew twenty-one. Thanks. It's like he's a co-teacher or something. Sorry, now I'm double-checking because that's not exactly what I thought that was. Yes. Yeah, so just that first part especially is so powerful. He has two sons. He goes to one and he says, hey, go into the fields and work. He says, I will. It never goes. And then he goes to another one and he says, I won't, which you think is incredibly offensive. But then he goes and Jesus asks, which one is actually doing his father's will? The one who has the confessionally accurate answer or the one who actually has the wrong answer at first but then later realizes I should repent and actually do what I was asked? 
And that is something about what interpretation needs to look like in Scripture. It's not just being able to say the words. It's not just about being able to say the words. It's about actually getting to the point where you realize, no, something was said to me, and it should catalyze me. It should motivate me into action. Even if I gave the wrong answer at first, I shouldn't stay stuck there. I need to move into understanding what was said to me and then going and doing what I was asked to do. And when we do, we'll... We're, this is a belief. It's a matter of belief that we do this. Jesus even gets, right? He's, he, at the end, he says, John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus is tying this so much to, like, do we believe? Well, one of the ways we know that we believe is when we're bearing fruit. It is the evidence of true belief that when we hear what God has to say and when we do what God says, that our hearts, we can have confidence that they have rested upon Jesus Christ. And so we just want to, we, we want to learn that. But the final thing I'll say about this, and I'll try to go through this a little bit quickly, uh, is just kind of a, a challenge to our modern age in terms of hearing and doing. Because one thing that you probably imagine is that a lot of this happens in, in private individual hours um, of study. And I actually do want to challenge that just a little bit briefly today, that a lot of this kind of hearing and doing should be done more communally. Uh, That's not to say you don't have any place in your life to do individual study. Not at all. It is just to say that we probably go too far that way as a culture, too far towards the individualistic readings. What I mean by that is that we should uh, read our Bibles. We should hear and do them, both one, historically, with those who have gone before us. So Hebrews 12 talks about this great cloud of witnesses, right? So we have many people, not even just in scriptures, but the, the early church fathers. We have great councils and creeds and these things that sum up what was believed in scripture, And some of the ways that we can actually hear and do the word properly is we want to read it alongside the church throughout time and space. That's one way we want to read, which, by the way, is a great way to escape. Sometimes people will come to you, and if you ever hear something like this where it's like, well, you're just a product of your interpretive community, or you can't read outside of kind of just the people around you. You have a blind spot in Scripture. If you ever hear that, one of the great ways to do that is just to read the Bible with other people from history. Because there's something about, you know, uh, saying that you have a a white, cisgender, heteronormative reading of Scripture that kind of just goes away when you start reading with Augustine. Uh, Or you start reading with the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa. Like, you start getting into these people and you're like, they're not very comfortable. And so in that way, we are challenged. But it, it helps you just avoid that. And you say, no, I actually do know what has been received throughout the church's history. And not all that the church has taught throughout history is right. But you'll see a consensus start to emerge. And this is just really helpful for having confidence in God's word, that we believe the same thing, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You'll see similarities with others who've gone before. So do that. Read older authors. Read older theologians when you have time and you can. But then also we should read even more communally and locally. So Acts 17, 10 through 11, right, uh, Paul is, uh, Luke is writing, about the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So just note how noble these are commended for actually searching the scriptures. Uh, But again, they probably weren't like, okay, we heard you, now we're all going to scatter to our rooms uh, because they probably didn't have their own codexes, lexicons, commentaries, podcasts, and AirPods. You know, like they probably just didn't have all these things. I know they didn't have AirPods, but they they probably were more likely, as Alistair Roberts will say, as members of a Jewish synagogue. It's more likely that they were assembling together regularly over the course of Paul and Silas's visit for a collective discussion of the accuracy of their teaching. In such a setting, there would have been a scribe consulting and reading aloud passages from specific scrolls in the synagogue's collection as they were mentioned in the discussion. Do you see how communal this act of searching the scriptures is? And I would just encourage us, we would avoid a lot of pain. There are things we can disagree on as Christians, Romans 14, but we probably think that means we can disagree on everything sometimes. Uh, Sometimes we run away with that and we're like, well, there's matters disagreeable and so my disagreement is valid. But there's so many things that we should actually think about more communally. What things should we be subject to in the government? That may be benefited by more communal discussion so that our witness is unified around what things we do and do not feel like we should submit to. And that's where the gift of the elders, of course, like comes in. And we should be praise God that we have people who can help teach and consult the word faithfully. And we can add to that, absolutely, as a congregational church. But we would probably be helped, and there would probably be less division, and the members of Christ's body would, would work better together 
if we thought more cohesively. Uh, and the world would just get a better picture of our witness, too. You know, it would be, it's, it's, as much as we can think with one mind, we should aspire to do that in Scripture. And so I would just encourage us, don't think of all that I'm talking about hearing and doing individualistically. Also see there's space and room for more communal aspects. All right, I want to just end on the fourth point, and then we will have time for, I hope, 10, 15 minutes of, of conversation um, at the end. So the, the final thing I want to talk about is why is it so important to get into our scriptures and read them? And the last thing that we wanted to talk about today was a relationship between right belief or right study of the scriptures and right practice, right? Again, hearing and doing. What is the relationship between them? We need to get into our Bibles. It's, that we, it's urgent that we do this. First of all, we all want to know what we're supposed to do with our lives. Even if you're not a Christian, you're still kind of going, what should I be doing? Well, it's great when you get into Scripture and you read in 1 Peter 1 that God's will is for our lives to put to silence the talk of foolish men. 1 Thessalonians 4 will tell you that God's will for your life is sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5 will say, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. These are not telling you all the nuts and bolts of your life, but they are categories for you to start thinking in how I know what God's will for me is. Now I have some handlebars within which to operate in wisdom in the world that I live. So, God's word helps us know what we should do by offering us these, this wisdom from God that helps inform our lives. And we have to remember in Psalm 1, right, there's ways we should and should not walk in. So there's the counsel of the wicked, and then there's the, the muttering, the meditating on the law of the Lord. And Jesus picks up on this on Matthew seven twenty four and says, whoever builds on my words will be on a sure foundation. They will be able to get through the straight and narrow path that leads to salvation. So we need to make sure we're getting there, that we know the way we should go. But the other thing I just want to warn you about is um, I also want to say that, that while Scripture tells us what we should do, we also need to be careful about developing a lot of practices before getting to God's Word because it actually makes interpretation harder. And what I mean by this is that um, you'll, you'll see many examples, and I'll just try to run through this. If you all have more questions afterwards, you can, we can draw this out. But you'll see people, for example, it happens all the time with, with same-sex attraction where somebody in a committed relationship, and there is great cost when you tell somebody who, for example, may have started at least what they think genuinely is a family, to tell them that's not a family, not in God's mind. That's a deep cost. We have to at least have to acknowledge what they would be leaving. And so if somebody's committed to that practice, right, they're going to be like, did God really say that? Because if I'm going to give this all up, I better be convinced. And so then you start to hear people, and, and some do, praise God, but some will start to say, well, the word homosexuality isn't in the Bible. And, yeah, I mean, on one level, sure, if, like, you, like, think there needs to be a Greek word that, like, spells out H-O-M-O-S-E-X-U-A-L-I-T-Y. That was hard to spell. But anyway, uh, if you think that that word needs to be, like, there has to be a literalistic translation that goes on there. But, you know, you, you start doing her, hermeneutic gymnastics is what I call it to get around the text, to say, well, these words weren't really there. Or you'll say, well, Paul just thought about older men taking advantage of younger boys. He didn't really know any consensual relationships like we do. And if Paul had, of course, like, well, like, love your neighbor. Uh, again, like, you see a tone of scripturality in those arguments. There is some effort to try to be scriptural. But there's a gymnastics going on to get around kind of the weight of the text. So that's one example. But we have that even with how we relate to technology, with entertainment with the things that we, we will take up. So, for example, I mean, even transhumanism is coming at us, and we like, should think about those efforts that we see in the world. Because when we start to breed practices in our lives, they're way harder to give up on the back end when you start to realize God's word, though it may not have an explicit command. This is something that happens all the time, is we think God's word has no explicit command against this, so it says nothing about it. It's just a matter of Christian freedom. That's a very, uh, I would just warn you against that kind of hermeneutical stance. That's not going to be very helpful. You're going to find scripture says uh, very little about anything going on in your life. Um, and so instead, we need to understand how us developing practices without going deeply into God's word will make those practices then hard to give up. And even when we think about how we're in, interacting with other people, when you take on a practice, I mean, so we just need to, to think seriously about churches as, as things like, I mean, the Facebook metaverse thing is honestly kind of disconcerting, I think. Uh, but we also have a lot of challenges, like with transhumanism, with the reproductive technologies that are advancing very rapidly. Um, these things may or may not be godly technologies, but we need to think about them before we start adopting them. 
Because the problem is, is that if we start adopting them and then try to go to God's word, well, there's obviously kind of a friction against wanting to actually believe God's word is saying anything when it's not explicit. You see how that works? There's kind of a, a, like the weight of the proof is now on God's word rather than my practice. My practice is the thing that's trying to be justified. That's the thing I want to prove is there. And so God's word has a harder job. It has a more lofty case that it needs to make. And we can even have that, that, that conscious effect on others. So 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The main point there just being that the way we interact actually is formative effects on other people's consciences too. So even if you feel like you have a proper knowledge and you have a freedom to use something, it is worth considering how taking on practices uh, forms kind of a collective consciousness within the body of Christ that then makes younger believers coming behind you more or less prone to using something. And they may pick it up and they may not have the kind of knowledge that you do or the kind of awareness of the freedom or why they can use that. And so it just should hesitate us to be adopting too many things in, from the secular world without very rigid evaluation by God's word. Because practice makes interpretation harder. So just a couple examples of this, and then I'm going to take questions. Just some bad examples of bad interpretation in the scripture. Pharisees and divorce in Matthew 19. Right? They come and they're like, can't we divorce a woman for any cause? And Jesus goes, he says, no, because in Genesis, I said that a man should leave his, uh, his father's house and he should hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. So what God has joined together, don't separate. And they go, well, but Deuteronomy 22, right? I mean, you know, whatever's displeasing in her, right? You know, we just have to write up the certificate of divorce. Moses said that and he gave it. I mean, you're contradicting Moses, right? See how they're starting to pit scripture against scripture? And now they're like, well, this one has super, and, and, and Jesus just says, it was not that way. And it was because of the hardness of your hearts. You guys don't even understand the law. Because some of the laws that are in there are just because people are sinners. And they're trying to restrain wickedness. They're not because you guys are so good. And this is like a, a thing that I wanted in my created order. That's one example. The command to honor father and mother versus Corban in Mark seven eleven. Right, the, the mothers and fathers are supposed to be honored by their, their sons. And yet there's this cheeky little thing where they can do Corban, which is dedicated to the Lord. It's like, I dedicated my money to the temple. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. You see what they're doing there? They're pitting the first table of the law by loving the Lord their God against the second table of the law. And they're making them conflict. And they're like, oh, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I've already dedicated all my money to the Lord. <sighs> Sorry. Tough luck. Instead of seeing that the first table should instruct the second table and lead us to the second table of the law, they pitted God's word against each other and they made God's word feel like a conflicting thing. That's bad interpretation. If you feel like God's word is conflicting, you should probably look inside and realize the problem's probably with me in my interpretive efforts if I'm making God's word seem like a conflicting thing. Because again, God does not conflict with himself. And God's law does not reveal conflicting elements within himself. And the last one is just asking, who is my neighbor? Luke 10, 29. You know, Jesus gets questioned. He gives a good answer about, uh, like we've said, the two love commandments. And somebody wanting to justify themselves says, but who is my neighbor? See how they're starting to pick apart words? Yeah, okay, Jesus, that's the right answer. But let's go into that, that word neighbor a little bit more. And Jesus just tells a story that makes it so obvious who your neighbor is that the guy leaves. But look at how the question isn't really interpretation. It's actually a defense from ever having to interpret the text. Because if you interpret it, you have to do it. And so uh, Van Hooser says uh, that the business of interpretation in this kind of sense, right? This, busy, this, this asking questions. The business of interpretation is busyness to constantly produce readings in order to avoid having to respond to the text. That's convicting. So if you feel like you always endlessly have questions about the text, just realize at some point the text has to have an answer. The text has to actually say something, and the text needs wants you to do what it is commanding you to do. Ultimately, we read scripture for a lot of these readings because we want to grow up from infants in the faith into mature people conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so I, um, yeah, I've taken more time than I meant to on that. So I'd like to just open it up at this point. We got five, ten minutes for questions. I know I kind of dumped a lot out there, but do you all have any questions on anything we ran over or comments or Fair game. Yeah, Brandon.
daily, weekly study of the word. Um, yeah, so thank you, Brandon. That's kind. Um, so kind of my daily practices uh, would be I, I try to be up by about 6 a.m. most days and just read for about an hour or so. Um, and then we close that off, Claire and I. We may read separately, but we'll come together and we'll just try to make sure we pray. I mean, that's a way that has helped in our marriage at least. It's just kind of unifying our minds around, even if we read different things, it's just helpful to hear what people are processing. And so we'll pray like that before we head out for the day. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of like podcasts the rest of the day. Uh, I, I podcast kind of incessantly. Um, I have the ability to, like, if, like, I'm doing, like, menial tasks at work or something, my ears are very good at, like, being able to multitask. Um, so I'll do that. I mean, it's helpful. I'm in seminary right now. That forces a lot of reading and studying on scripture. And so um, beyond that, I mean, we try to do some family devotions. We're trying to get in that practice. Advent readings, uh, going through the, the Valley of Vision by the Puritans. Um, we sing songs. Songs are huge. I mean, songs teach such great truths if you find good ones. And there are so many good songs. Um, yeah, and I mean, like I said, one thing that helps keep me in it that I will say as well is I set alarms on my phone for like every couple hours, and it just uh, reminds me to pray about different things. Um, so like I have one at 9 a.m. that says Lord's Prayer. I have one at 11 a.m. that like says a pray for government. And it's like, well, if I have this technology, I may as well try to redeem it and uh, make something of it. And so let's use it for something good. Um, anyway, those are some ideas that I have. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Bible talk is a great one. If you ever want to get into to something that's just wonderful people reading scripture they will help you with a lot of biblical canonical kind of readings of scripture as well um that is an awesome one another one that i i often enjoy uh is called mere fidelity um i find the people on there generally have really helpful things to discuss i mean they come from a wide range so i mean you know kind of listen with a, a discern but largely they're really faithful guys and so largely they're helpful um i'm trying to think of of other ones that I listen to. Uh, Christian History Almanac. I listen to that on the drive to work almost every day. Uh, yeah, anyway. Renewing your mind. I'm hearing, yeah. Apparently. Yeah, Knowing Faith. I've listened to that some. It's a good podcast. Yeah. Any other questions about the content material? We got five, ten, mo- ten more minutes maybe. Yeah, Matt, bring it. Hmm. Um, that's a good question. So I will say, I think that I have not encountered a ton of people who do it. I think it's possible if it leads to the cold formality of confession that I talked about. So in, in Revelation 1, the church that's lost its first love, but they're really good in testing doctrine. I would consider that potentially some form of like cold doctrinalism. Um, it's not super common. I don't find that that's most people's struggle, but I think it is plausible. Um, and I think you just have to like ask yourself again that question, is the way that I'm utilizing doctrine actually spurring me on towards love of God and love of my neighbor as myself? And if you are, it's like, I, they're not, if, if all that they're saying is, hey, the word's too central or you're just like reading from the Bible too much, but you're like, I know we're loving people. And we're loving people according to what the scripture says we're supposed to do. Then I wouldn't spend much time thinking about it. I, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was said just thinking through the. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just commented that um Right, yeah. No, I've got you. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it was just commented that if uh we just defining what we mean by idolizing. Yeah, I think that is good. But was that helpful? Yeah. That makes sense. Hit and miss on Christianity today, honestly. So uh, sometimes it's great stuff, but eh, not all the time. Yeah. 
Amen. Yep. Yeah, Andrew was just saying that, if, yeah, if we're approaching Scripture the right way, if it's drawing us up into God, I mean, yeah, there's, just, there, there's no accusation of idolatry that could stand there. Any other uh, final questions before I... Oh, relevant. <laughs> I thought you were making a joke about Christianity today. Um, anyway, uh, any other final questions, comments? Otherwise, I will pray us out. All right. Lord, we love you, and we uh, just are so thankful, Lord, that not only did you send your son, Jesus Christ, uh, as the incarnate word, but, Lord, that you have uh, inscripturated your word as well by the Holy Spirit's ministry to make sure that the testimony of Christ was accurately and faithfully captured, that we could read about him, that we could find him, we could come to Christ and have life. And, Lord, uh, I just pray that as we think about why we study our Bibles, Lord, that love for you, that know you and the gift that that is would just motivate us, Lord, that the hope that we have that one day we will be united with God himself. He will be our God and we will be his people. We will be your people, God. Just please uh, open our hearts to understand the scriptures, open our hearts to want to approach the scriptures and to hear humbly what you have for us in them. And we pray this in Christ's name.